We're continuing today in our look at anger in the Psalms, and I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 39. We were in Psalm 37 last week, now we're in Psalm 39. I encourage you to stand as we read God's Word and remember that this is His holy and inspired Word. David writes, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. And as I mused, the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. I'm mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest, like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we read a psalm like this one from David, and perhaps as we identify with parts of it, Lord, that you would help us to be open-minded, teachable, ready to receive your word with meekness, that it might uh, allow us to not only evaluate our our own minds, hearts, and and souls, but Lord, to be ready and quick to listen, slow to speak, even as we see David here in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, as I said, we began a, a look at anger and made the following observations based upon examples of sinful anger like that of Cain and in Genesis 4 and examples of God's righteous anger in other passages. We made the observation, for example, uh, that comes from Robert Jones's definition here that I, I brought up last week and I thought was a good summary of, of some of the passages that we covered, and that is that anger is the whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. There were a lot of words in that definition. We went through several of them. We're going to use this again today as we pick up something that we asked last week but we didn't fully answer. Should a Christian always refrain from anger as David implied in Psalm 37? Remember he wrote These words, he said, refrain from anger, for it tends only towards evil. And so the question is, is that an absolute admonition? 
Or is David making more of a proverbial, what we would say, a proverbial statement like Solomon does in the Proverbs and where he gives these principles that are generally true, obviously divinely inspired truth. And that's what it means, that we should generally, wisely, soberly refrain from anger, but it's not an absolute statement. Well, to answer that, perhaps a better question is whether we as Christians can actually even model the righteous anger of God. Or should we doubt that it's realistically possible given our continued struggles with our flesh and our sin? After all, David here in Psalm 39, as he evaluates his own behavior, says he will guard his ways. He will guard his mouth with a muzzle. You ever say that to yourself? Put a muzzle on my mouth. And knowing himself, he realizes that having held his peace and then having his distress continue to grow and to build and get worse, eventually his anger began to boil inside. And verse 3, he says, as I mused, which means as I was internally working through these things, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. And perhaps it sounds familiar Maybe like your own struggles. And, but notice in verse 4 and following that when David does speak, he, he speaks to the Lord. So he asks God to help him remember the finite nature of earthly life. And how the wicked will perish. And while he ultimately is here, yes, struggling, he will be with the Lord. And he recognizes that the persecution that he faces is at the permission of God. And so we see even in this, even in in the anger that causes him, as he had said, I'm going to not speak, but then he ends up speaking. At least we see in this example, a good example of how how to deal with anger as we turn to the Lord and ask him to help us remember our frailty, our our finitude, our, our faith. Well, if we go back to that definition, and remember how last week we spent a lot of time looking at God's anger Today we look at the anger in us and this subject of righteous anger. And I I look at this here, anger is the whole person, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And we did spend a significant amount of time last week looking at how anger does involve the whole person. It, It involves the heart with motion and mind, with our thoughts and our bodies, So let's look at this next definition element, which is anger as an active response of negative moral judgment. Author David Pallison says that at its core, anger is very simple in that it expresses, I'm against that. And is this active stance that you take to oppose something you find offensive and wish to eliminate. And that's a good paraphrase of of an active response of negative moral judgment. It's it's active because it wishes to eliminate or remove something. It is negative because it expresses a rejection or displeasure. You are against something. And when you are, if you think about the opposite, when you're pleased about and instead for something, it's impossible to feel angry. No offense is taken. You approve. 
So what is the angry person against? He is or she is against a perceived evil. And that is what gives anger its moral dimension. Anger is in that sense, rightly been called the moral emotion because it makes a statement about what ought to be and what ought not to be. And so here's an initial important point. Every time that you get angry, you make your values explicit. Think about the times you've been angry or irritated, frustrated or hurt. What do they reveal about what you value? What are the perceived evils of your life? In Psalm 37, David said, refrain from anger for it tends only to evil. But a similar passage in James, James 1:19 and 20 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we note that James says to be slow to anger. He doesn't say, do not get angry. He warns that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, just as David said that anger can tend towards evil. So perhaps to answer the question of whether we as Christians can be righteously angry like God, we must understand what James means by the anger of man. Well, in the next verse after the passage that I just read to you in James, we read this, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And the implication from James there is that there are two factors at work when it comes to anger. The first is that our tendency to take in filth and wickedness and by extension to embrace worldly values is common, that is the nature of the flesh. And when we do that, what we, what we regard as perceived evil usually is that which threatens our comfort and our fleshly desires and perceived needs. And in that situation, even a righteously aroused anger, something that would have been normally a, a, a good anger, can easily degenerate into self-righteousness and gossip and self-pity, vengeance, and cynicism. So we have that at work. That's that first factor. The second factor is this purposeful taking in of God's word in a spirit of meekness and humility. And that is the heart of David's prayer in the later part of Psalm 39. When he finds that he's angry, he turns to God to help him address his heart in his mind, and his body. Only then will he know when to be angry and how to be angry, when to be silent, when to speak. Remember that anger is one of God's attributes. That's a point that we sometimes forget. He is a wrathful God. So anger or wrath is not inherently evil. In fact, being created in the image of God, I'm going to say this, being created in the image of God means that anger is one of the aspects that makes us a very good creation. Maybe that's a a surprising statement. Maybe it seems wrong somehow because 
your experience of anger either in yourself or in a family member has only been of sinful anger, the anger of man that James talks about. But let me ask you this. Should not Adam have reacted in anger against the serpent trying to deceive Eve? Absolutely. And and all of you men should be saying yes. Absolutely. He should have had a whole person active negative response against the serpent and violently removed it from the garden. After all, God tells Adam and Eve that one day their descendant will crush the head of the serpent. So there's no wishy-washy tolerance of evil there, right? God is, is saying, I'm angry, and I'll deal with this. But anger should have been Adam and Eve's attitude towards evil. So to be a Christian does not mean to be against anger. David Pallison again writes, some people in the name of being self-controlled, I like this quote, actually prove themselves to be uncaring or obtuse. They sin by omission. They are aloof, failing to help where godliness would get upset and look for ways to make an impact. But neither is Christianity, he adds, against unleashing emotion. As Solomon says, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He concludes, anger is not neutral. A line between wisdom and foolishness runs through the center of every instance of anger. It is either godly or devilish. Good quote. Good comments. But his thoughts go against the grain of modern culture. Our culture is inconsistent, though. Certainly, it champions tolerance for sin, but intolerance for righteousness. And with regard to anger, our culture says anger either just is, meaning that's an abstract emotion that just happens to us, or that it is bad and we should never be angry, or we should be angry at righteousness. You know, there's just complete inconsistency in our world, but, but all of the various aspects of it, none of them comes to what Pallison just said. None of them comes to what the Bible talks about. So God expects us to care about injustice and evil and oppression against the innocent. He expected the same of Adam and his descendants. We saw Cain last week as the first example of human anger, at least as is described in, in the Bible. And notice here in a few verses later from where we read last time what God told Cain. He said, according to Genesis 4, 6, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So instead of being angry at evil... Cain was angry that God had rejected his offering, an offering that Cain had given out of duty and not out of faith. That's the implication from the book of Hebrews. And God warned Cain. And in that warning, we learn something important about our own anger. The devil, our sin, our flesh, they are crouching at the door. Crouching at our door. Their desire is to master us 
but we must master them. And as I said last week, don't just think angry and enraged moments. Think about all the variations, the irritations, the frustrations, uh, the, sometimes even the hurts based upon offenses. All variations of this theme of anger. And the question is, are we being mastered? Or will we master it? And we talked even a few weeks ago about the spiritual war around us. And this, my friends, is one of the biggest battles. The battle to rightly interpret our circumstances and to rightly respond to evil as God sees evil. So the answer to that earlier question, should Christians refrain entirely from anger, I hope you see by now, is that we should be slow to anger, angry about the right things. God created us with the ability to be angry at evil and expects that actual response from us, even as he expects that we will carefully and soberly evaluate what makes us angry. Righteous anger is, is a result of loving God and loving those who are harmed by evil is natural to what God has created in us. Cain should have loved his brother. But because of the fall, he instead loved his own pleasure and self-justification. And then he ended up hating the very thing he should have loved. And we see that all the time, don't we, in our own situations. We even see that in our young children, right? We, we tell them no and they have tantrums. Do they love and respect the fact that their parents stand in the place of the Lord in their lives, assisting them to learn what is good for them? No, they want what their flesh desires. But you know what? We do the same things as, as we get older. We just learn to throw better tantrums. At least most of us do. And we have to be aware of the deceitfulness of our hearts, in our flesh. And that leads to another important point. Over the course of our lives, we learn patterns of anger from family and friends and society. We learn what to be upset about and how to show our displeasure. But Proverbs twenty two twenty four wisely warns us, make no friendship with a man given to anger nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Whose ways have you learned when it comes to anger? Who was your model? Was it a parent, a sibling, a peer? In a similar way, Proverbs 13.20 says, whomever... Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So even as I ask, what examples have you learned? The next question would be, are you walking with the wise? Would you say that the the people around you, the peers that are around you, your closest friends, fit this description of wise friends, or do they fit the companion of fools description? And if you say, I don't have any wise friends, or I live in a family in which I am surrounded by terrible examples when it comes to anger, then remember the Apostles John's words in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him 
ought to walk in the same way that he walked. And you do have Jesus' example in his word. And so perhaps as James said in that earlier passage I read from chapter 1, it's time to take in with humility and meekness, you know, implant the word. The important thing, though, is to recognize that while you can learn the ways of the wicked or of the righteous, the foundation of anger, whether it is sinful or righteous, comes out of the heart. It springs from internal sources. So Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So at the end of the day, you cannot blame your childhood. You cannot blame your spouse or your children or any other person for sinful responses to life. Yes, you've learned patterns. And and those are influential factors but the, the struggles with anger, the struggles with irritation and hurt and, and bitterness and cynicism, those ultimately are sourced from the heart. And so far we've seen that anger is a moral judgment. It is a response to perceived evil that involves the whole person, our emotions, our thoughts, and our actions. We've seen how God expects that we should be angry at the things that he regards as evil, and that part of ruling over creation as his representative is the rejection and removal of evil to the extent that we are able. And still, though, we should be slow to anger. As we see in Psalm 39, as well as the Proverbs, James, and other passages, why? Why should we still have as a priority to be slow to anger? The answer is not... Because God wants a a moderate or a mild response to evil. It's because our motives are so easily entangled with the flesh. And we have learned bad examples and patterns. And so I want to spend some time with some practical matters in that regard. And, And specifically to share with you five questions to ask when you evaluate what is making me angry and whether I am responding properly. Question one, am I perceiving as evil what God regards as evil? It's very easy for us to create our own personal kingdoms, isn't it? We have our own laws, and since we are the kings and the queens of our own kingdom... Many of our kingdom's laws support keeping us on the throne and helping our kingdom continue to function. Those laws usually include everything from expectation that I'm respected and admired to the requirement that I be listened to, loved, and yet left alone when I want some space. Think about the example of Jonah. We learned from that book that Jonah was angry. Angry that God's grace and mercy would upend his kingdom. Because in his kingdom, it was the Israelites, and he thought this was on very solid grounds. The Israelites, 
who had any hope for God's forgiveness. Certainly not the Assyrians. God challenges him several times with regard to his anger. And so in verse 4 we read, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? God's asking Jonah if he's perceiving evil accurately. And his response there in verse 9, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. That's pretty serious. But that's how we are sometimes, isn't it? We are so convinced of our right to be angry and our justification in the way we feel and our handling and responding to things. And God ends his comments with these words found in verse 10 and 11. You pity a plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And we read earlier from James, and were we to continue to read that book, we would be reminded that our conflicts with others spring from our fleshly desires and our false beliefs. I think Jonah was struggling with that, And as you think through the past few times that you've been angry or irritated or frustrated or hurt were fleshly desires or false beliefs an issue, were you rightly perceiving evil? One way to determine how much of your flesh is involved is to ask in the midst of anger, what do I really want? Now, anger usually takes control of us, and that's a good sign that that's probably sinful anger because one of the other attributes of God is self-control. But a lot of times when you are in the midst of your anger, you can be self-evaluative. At least I've found it easier and easier as I'm growing older, which I think is an improvement, right? And one of the things to ask in that moment is, what do I really want? What do I want? And if you're honest with God's help, you can often recognize if you're really craving to get even, to hurt someone, are you trying to not be inconvenienced and so anger as intimidation is a good technique or tool? Are you trying to get your way to humiliate, to win? The heart is deceitful, but if you live your life in an attitude of prayer, even in times of anger, you can recognize if you are being led by your kingdom or by God's kingdom. Question number two, am I expressing my anger in a way that glorifies God? It's possible to perceive evil accurately and yet sin in a way that we respond You may remember a few years ago that I said that we need to be better about how we define the term love. I said too many times we hear how love is just unconditional self-sacrifice. And and usually that's coupled with looking at different uh, Greek words and and focusing on agape love as unconditional self-sacrifice. And I challenge that notion as being overly simplistic. Because when we look at examples of love in Scripture, we always find that love has a direction, has a, has an, a goal and a purpose. 
You don't just sacrifice yourself for anything and everything. You sacrifice yourself so that the one you are loving will be sanctified and edified as a result. Your purpose is that Christ would be formed in others. And the great example there is Ephesians 5, where a husband is called to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And then what we read about there is that he gave himself up for her. There's that unconditional self-sacrifice, right? So that, and we always miss the last part of that verse, why did he give himself up? So that she might be presented blameless before the Father. That's the, that's the goal, the sanctification, the edification part. And anger is the same way. Anger is the same way. Yes, it is an active negative response against a perceived evil, but it also has a direction. And that direction is that evil should be removed and that God should be glorified. Evil should be removed, God should be glorified, and when we are sinfully angry, our purpose is not being expressed in a way that glorifies God, it is being expressed as a purpose to vent or to take revenge or to manipulate or intimidate or any number of self-glorifying, self-glorifying purposes. God intends that good result from good anger. We are to stop wrong. We are to protect the weak. We are to challenge tyrants. We are to rebuke. We are to warn. We are to alert people to danger. But under, above, and through all of those is the fact that our anger arises out of a love for God and for others. If it's arising out of a love for self, you're getting off on the wrong foot. And so that makes sense of a passage like Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That includes when we're angry. It's not just that we aren't to curse and use foul language and that's what's bad about anger. It's that the words that we use in all circumstances are to build up and impart grace. When Jesus was angry, he sometimes said harsh words and he did overturn money changers' tables and he called the Pharisees vipers. But it would be inaccurate to say that he was simply venting. He spent three years teaching about the principles of God's kingdom, of warning the people. He was not argumentative for the sake of argument. He was not all the sinful things that we talked about. He was not a gossip. He was not trying to manipulate or intimidate. He wasn't fake or unfair or unloving or cynical. In fact, even as he was dying, what does he say in the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. So here's another question for you. In the times that you believe that you were righteously angry, did you love the one who angered you? Were you saying, what is best for them? Or were you saying in your mind and in your heart, they don't get anything from me? And no, I don't mean if you're a husband or a wife, were you in that moment to saying, 
Of course I still loved my spouse. I mean, what I mean is, in the moment, in that moment when you were angry, were you thinking of God's glory and the good of your spouse or your child or your friend or your parent or your sibling? And this is where I fail. Maybe it's where you fail too. Too often I'm angry about my kingdom getting turned upside down. So I'm, I'm not talking about those times. There are times when I might be angry with a family member or something that I think is a righteous anger. Someone is mistreating someone else. Someone is providing a bad example of Christ-likeness. But in those moments, if I'm honest with myself, I am responding in venting. I use absolute words like you always or you never, right? And I find that my goal is more, is more critique than building up. It's more breaking down than edifying or sanctifying. I even find that I'm inserting some of my own frustrations and past offenses Maybe even retaliating for the last time this person was angry at me. There are many, many times that we get angry and the context of that anger and somebody says, why are you so angry? It's like, this was such a little thing, right? And then we will say, well, this is one of my hot buttons. This is a trigger. This is a catalyst. This is brought to mind all the things. And we go and we bring out the gunny sack, but we do it over and over again, don't we? Paul Tripp in his book, What Did You Expect?, makes the important point that our marriages are built upon a myriad of small moments. Not the few and far between big moments. Similarly, don't think back upon the one time when you were righteously angry as defining who you are. That was a big moment. It's the myriad little moments. Are you handling this issue well? Do you instead see a pattern of not responding well? Question three is, am I self-controlled when I'm angry? And this question is similar to the last one with regard to how you respond to anger, but where the last question dealt with the purpose of your response, which is to glorify God and not to glorify yourself, this question deals with your heart. I've had times when I thought that I was angry about a true evil, but that my, be- my response was probably best described as enraged because, well, I started speaking my mind. It didn't stop until I was done, and I lost control, right? Proverbs 29, 11 speaks to me in that regard, and it says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. But a wise man quietly holds it back. And if righteous anger is of God, then it must be consistent, as I said, with the fruit of the Spirit, which includes self-control and gentleness and patience. And maybe that all seems like a contradiction because as we've talked about anger, we've recognized that it is a whole-person response of heart, mind, and body. But it must be true in God's Kingdom, it must be true 
that we can have increased energy, increased emotion, and also productively direct that emotion at the same time. Jay Adams writes, anger is the emotion that has been given by God to attack problems. The energies of anger must be productively released under control toward a problem. Anger must be directed towards destroying the problem, not destroying the person. Anger, like a good horse, must be bridled. Good words, too. I mentioned having young children earlier, and some of you parents can identify with the righteous anger you feel when your child defies you. After all, like I said, you're standing in the place of the Lord, and your desire is for their good, right? And they've just violated the fifth commandment. Did you respond in firm grace, or did you respond in rage? Adams is saying that you are right to be angry over the sin of your child, but your anger must be directed towards solving the problem, not towards destroying your child or your spouse or your friend. Question four, am I angry for an appropriate length of time? Righteous anger has a right focus. As we said, it is a rejection of evil as God would define evil. It has a right purpose, which as we saw in that second question is God's glory and the edification of others. It also has a right duration. When anger lasts a day, a week, a decade, a lifetime, something is wrong. When it settles into bitterness and hostility, it is not the Lord who is being glorified, but the devil who is winning. We become like our oppressors, returning evil for evil. In Ephesians 4.26, we read, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And friends, this is less about making sure that you resolve every problem by the end of the day. It is true. I think it's a good practice, and we've often, in talking to couples, said that it's, it's important to be thinking about bringing resolution to your conflict, and it's great to think of it as by the end of the day, you know. Don't let it continue into day after day after day, but this verse is less about resolving every problem by the end of the day and more about not letting anger and conflict continue to simmer. And of course, I'm not saying that after a short time period, you stop hating evil. In a sense, we'll always be angry against evil and sin and rejection of and resistance to evil will be an extended fight. But what I am saying is that too many of us let our hurts and our frustrations simmer and become bitterness and self-pity. We let them turn into a poison in our lives. And they produce the good thing that lets us know, you know, because a lot of us go, I am so right to be angry about the situation and what they have continued to do about me. You know, we're like David in Psalm 39 and we're musing a lot about those situations and the fire's burning. But here's how you know it's burning with the flames of hell. 
it's that it turns into gossip and malice and cynicism and bitterness and sullenness and all of the things that are not a fruit of the Spirit. If you are seeing that, know that those things, as the Bible describes, like in Hebrews 12, 15, they will destroy relationships, they will destroy families, they will destroy churches. The root of bitterness can spring up and not only cause much trouble in the church, but it defiles many. Jesus told us that we need to be ready to forgive even when our brother or sister sins against us in the same way over and over again. And sadly, I think many of us are not as much ready to forgive as we are ready to be angry. Is that you? Are you the type of person who is ready to be angry? Do you find that you have hot buttons? And a lot of them. I'm covered in hot buttons. Which is really just to say that you can quickly and easily move from a state of peace to a state of rage when things trigger you. Do people have to walk on eggshells around you? Would your spouse, your children, or your parents describe you as an angry person? A bitter person. If, if righteous anger is of God, then it is consistent with his grace and his mercy and his peace. And only the desire to show mercy and to bring peace can end the pattern of button-pushing and angry reactions that define our lives. Last question, question five. How are people affected by my anger? Righteous anger leads ideally, listen to this, righteous anger leads ideally to conviction and repentance and worship. How can it not if it is of God? Conviction, repentance, and worship. It rescues the oppressed and the weak. It glorifies God. Sinful anger just creates more problems. Breakdown of relationship. It increases fear amongst family members and friends. It increases conflict. It makes loved ones defensive and themselves angry. In other words, as Hebrews 12 talked about, it defiles others. Sinful anger defiles and corrupts and divides and destroys. Godly, righteous anger leads to conviction, to repentance, and worship. People may react improperly to righteous words. There's always that possibility. Sometimes righteous anger expressed in a way that is consistent with God's love and mercy will be rejected, but don't let that statement lead you then to justify rotten words spoken in sinful anger. Well, they're just rejecting it because they don't love God. That's not what's... The better question is whether your righteous anger stirs God's people to conviction, repentance, and worship, or does it just create more conflict? Do you find yourself regularly having to ask for forgiveness? Sure sign that was sinful anger.
In the end, you must look at and look to Jesus. And isn't that what we see David doing in Psalm 39? That whole last half of that psalm, as I said, is David asking the Lord for right understanding and a committed trust in God. Yes, he's angry. Yes, he's frustrated. But he knew that God was in control, that he has a purpose, and that any righteous anger must have God's kingdom and not our own as its motivation. When you look at Jesus, all of his actions and words, even his angry ones, were intended to serve the well-being of those who are poor in spirit. So I know these are all difficult principles. I fail all the time, and I'll close with this. Godly anger does not have to win. Godly anger does not have to win. If your righteous anger does not produce the intended and desirable effect, you don't have to become angrier. Jesus would have you continue to pray for the other person's well-being, which includes their repentance. And you, on the other hand, are called to continue to show grace and mercy, knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. Good remembrance for us. Come back for more next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this soul and heart surgery from your word in the Psalms and other passages of of your word, which is meant to equip us for righteousness. I thank you, Lord God, that you have given us the ability when when we are humbly living according to your word, the ability to respond rightly to evil to be angry at the things that oppose you and and would destroy your people. But Lord, we are so easily distracted by the flesh. Sin so easily masters us, the devil and and the world and our desires, and, and we find ourselves in these terrible patterns. And so I pray, Lord, that we would desire to be applying some of these questions to our lives to, to learn from here to mature. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.